Welcome to Ivy's Late Night. Joining us tonight, we're celebrating 11 years of podcasting. Yeah, that's right. Tonight is our anniversary, and um, I'm so excited. We're going to be talking about ways to overcome non-adherence when taking your medication. What is glucagon, and why should you take it? Tips on how to handle your family when they challenge your own personal health habits, and the legacy of Frankie Knuckles and his diabetes health issues. But first, let's talk about our musical inspiration. You just heard Toni Braxton. She's also celebrating a milestone with us tonight. It's the 25th anniversary of the release of her second multi-platinum selling album entitled Secret. On stage and off, Toni Braxton is a true survivor. She's had her share of heartbreak, health issues, and bankruptcy, but somehow she always manages to come out singing. (laughs) And uh, guess what, uh, Toni Braxton fans? She's planning to release some new music later on this year. Some of our favorite Tony Braxton quotes for you include, I'm not a diva. I'm a tadpole trying to be a frog. I'm living with lupus, Tony Braxton says. I could live a totally normal life and do everything I want to do just as long as I take my medication. My body will give me signals if it gets too weak or fatigued so I know when to take a break. How about you? Are you compliant with your medications? We'll be talking to Dr. Mandy Reese about that in a short uh, brief moment, but first we're going to talk a little bit more about another major diva and her milestone. That's right, our very big uh, diva inspiration, Pat LaBelle, celebrates the 20th anniversary of her cookbook, LaBelle Cuisine, Recipes to Sing About This Year. Patty wrote this inspirational cookbook to share recipes that are simple and not complicated to bring joy and flavor to your family table. She added some new fish and chicken quarantine recipes for her 20th anniversary special edition because cooking is how she coped with not performing during the pandemic. She admits that she eats every dish in that cookbook. I don't, but she does. But she says she does it with moderation. You might want to check that book out. Today's guests on our uh, podcast include Dr. Mandy Reese, Patricia Eddy-Gentle, Sonia Hoggins, and Keith Anthony Fluitt. And throughout the podcast, we're going to be featuring music, like I said, from Tony Braxton's second album, Secret, courtesy of Sony Music. Tony Braxton said that the motivation for this album was to include a little bit of everything. Her aim was to come up with material that would have a familiar feel to the people who bought the first album, but still wouldn't be musically redundant. Before we get started, I'd like to encourage you to follow us on Facebook and hit the subscription button on, for Divabetic on your YouTube and iTunes channel so you never miss an episode. Our seven-time Grammy-winning artist sold over 70 million records and is one of the best-selling R&B artists of all time. She has overcome several setbacks in her life, including bankruptcy, divorce, and, yes, a lupus diagnosis. 
hopefully she can encourage you to overcome some obstacles in your life that are stopping you from living your best diabetes life. Here's Come On Over, courtesy of Sony Music, to help us kick off our celebration. Medications are prescribed and no thought is given 
to whether the insurance will cover it, how much is it going to cost, even the copay. So folks get to the pharmacy and they get sicker shock and they don't get the medication or maybe they get it the first month and realize, hey, I can't afford this. And they don't really say anything until their next visit with their provider. And then just uh, sort of the stigma with diabetes, feeling as though somehow they've done something wrong and, and they just, they want to do it the natural way and they don't want medication. They don't believe they need medication. Yeah, I want to unpack some of these things. So um, I'm going to go in reverse order with what you just said, like because there's a lot, it seems to me there's a lot of, common assumptions that taking medication is is bad for you and it's not a healthy behavior. I mean, you don't hear anyone say, when I take my medication, I'm going to be healthier, right? So I'm wondering, like, where does that start? Like, where, you know, because this idea of any, you know, especially around diabetes and specifically around type 2 diabetes, it it seems to me like the first thing you hear the doctor say is, like, you know, if you just made quote unquote lifestyle changes, you wouldn't have to take any medication. So where's my incentive or one of our listeners' incentives to want to take my medication? Who 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 is responsible for that or who could own up to that? Sure. And I think it's important in the conversation um for the person with diabetes to understand First of all, the shame and stigma that's often around type 2 diabetes in particular that, uh, and I've seen this firsthand, these terms thrown up, just you need to eat less sugar and exercise more and then you won't need medicine. But that's simply not true. That doesn't take into account that person with diabetes and their unique body. So maybe it's to the point their body's not able to make insulin anymore or the liver is putting out so much sugar that diet alone isn't going to be um, what's really needed for their body to help get that blood sugar in a healthy range. And it's really customizing a plan for that person with diabetes so that they can live the healthiest, healthiest life possible. And unfortunately, as you said, medications often held as a punishment with diabetes that, oh, if you would just get everything right, then you wouldn't need medication or you wouldn't need insulin. I've seen that firsthand this week in a conversation with a person that is newly diagnosed with diabetes. Um, They're frustrated because they're, they're, quote, dieting, they're being physically active, and their blood sugar is all over the place. And they really have in the conversation is that there's a number of factors that impact your blood sugar, not just the food you eat and the physical activity. And so medication, medications that specifically address what goes, what goes, what you know, what is no longer right in our bodies, what are our needs, and medication can meet those specific needs for each individual person with diabetes, but it is not a sign of weakness or failure that or shame to need medication. Um, I even experienced somebody that had uh, diabetes, had a gastric bypass, lost weight, and their body still needed diabetes medication. And so having a conversation of, yeah, you've lost weight, but your body isn't making enough insulin, and we still need that. We need to look at what medication might work best, and we're probably going to have to try several different medications to figure out what's right for you and for what your body needs. 
But I have to say, I mean, I think that's all well and good, and I agree with it. But, you know, in today's world where it's a seven-minute doctor visit, you go to the pharmacy, there's a line of 12 people behind you. You don't, I'm not going to reveal that I had gastric bypass in front of everyone and have you tell me I'm, I need to stay on my medications because at some point I would feel like I was a failure. I'm just being honest. When do I have these conversations? I mean, like how, how would you, who do I fix this with? And also I, I just have to say from the initial diagnosis, I think I would be in overwhelm. So, you know, truthfully, if you were to start telling me all this stuff after you admitted I had the diagnosis, I might not hear it. But everyone we ever talk about, talk with on this podcast for the last 11 years has basically always said that they were told they had diabetes and that was the beginning and the end of the conversation. And again, I'm saying diabetes because most of the time people don't identify the different types, which is also confusing. But, you know, in the doctor's appointment, obviously someone's telling they have type 1 or type 2. But I'm just wondering, like, where do you, where do you put this conversation and since this is such a big issue for people that they don't feel like they're getting the information they need in order to manage this condition? These are great points. I would say that's where um, a diabetes care and education specialist um, asking for um, an appointment with a diabetes care and education specialist, and if the work schedule doesn't allow an in-person meeting, a virtual meeting, um, because that's the individual that really can have that conversation about, okay, let's talk about, first of all, you just found out you have a chronic condition and that's really overwhelming. So let's talk through that and where you're at, and then we can talk about medications. But I mean, you're right. I mean, that initial diagnosis is devastation um, oftentimes to a person. And so really requesting being proactive about getting an appointment with a diabetes care and education specialist is absolutely essential. And now I want to talk about the sticker thing because, you know, uh, what you manage is sticker shock because we talk a lot about insulin and the cost of insulin, but there's a lot more items and equipment that add to the expense of managing diabetes. One of our uh, guests coming up, you know, was interested in getting a blood glucose monitor. And when I started diabetic back in 2003, people would throw them at me to give out at me uh, at my outreach events to give them away for free. Today, it's a totally different story, and then getting your strips is another cost, and it's a very expensive condition to manage, and of course, if you're not being educated about it, why would you want to invest in it? You know what I mean? So how, what kind of advice or tips can you give about that, just starting with these very basic things of just even a glucose meter and test strips? Like how can someone who's listening right now, especially because so many people lost their jobs during the pandemic, uh, find some kind of financial uh, ease with the burden of managing diabetes? Um, Those are great questions and a reality for many folks living with diabetes. And one meter I typically I do recommend to a lot of folks that's an affordable option. I know from an um, accuracy standpoint, it's a good meter, and that's the Walmart rely on meter. Um, and it's made in a manufacturing facility with other branded meters. And so I knew, so from a, you know, done my research to see, okay, what meters are accurate. 
And um, so oftentimes I will recommend that one. I, I encourage folks to find out if there are diabetes programs within their community. Um, if they have an employer, does the employer have a diabetes wellness program to see if they could get access to a meter and strips. Um, and I've actually found as well, and this one can be a little tricky, is uh, meters and test strips being sold on Amazon. The one challenge with that is, especially now it's hot in the summer, if the meter and test strips get delivered, the person's not home and it sits in the heat, then the accuracy of those test strips is not going um, to be um, what it should be. And I do tell folks, and the challenge with this is though that the strips are often expensive, is many times the primary care providers can actually get free meters, but what's really expensive is actually the test strip. So I encourage folks to kind of do your homework to see um, if there's programs, because some of the companies like OneTouch may have a program where you can get a reduced cost for your test strips. And two, really important, is understand why you're testing and how often you need the test. Now, in terms of testing the blood sugar several times a day, certainly if somebody's on insulin, um, that is certainly needed. If a person's not on insulin, and their blood sugar is not necessarily erratic. Uh, it's they, you know, they know their body. They know when things get a little wacky. It's maybe testing a few times a week at different times a day, and making sure to. And this is a big pet peeve of mine: is folks will test their sugar and then they'll take it into their office visit, and nobody will do anything with it. So then the person wonders, why should I even test? So making sure that that information is being used in the decision-making process. I think that's really great advice. I love the advice about the um, Amazon and making sure that you, if it is out, you know, so many people in the West right now are dealing with these really intense heat things that they should be aware that it could be affecting not only their equipment but also their insulin and other things like that. You know, the I, I just have to say the ironic Part irony of all of this is that uh, when I go into the pharmacy and the grocery store and look at the aisles, people have no problem taking extra supplements or things like that where they do have a problem with their medication. So because you are a pharmacist, I want to talk about this because Tony Braxton's mother, Evelyn Braxton, who's living with type 2 diabetes, um, said that she has been posting on social media that she's been taking a detox supplement uh, to help her manage her diabetes and I'm just wondering you know what are the guidelines with that are there are there uh, is mixing med medications with like dietary supplements or even detox teas or anything we see on TV is that a good idea yeah that and um, I always tell folks you have to be cautious about that especially any product that says they're a detox pill, they're um, a detox tea. I tell folks, be weary. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, in, in those cases, there is not scientific evidence to back up um, that those teas and pills will do what they say they do. Um, I always um, tell folks when it comes to supplements, a lot of times people think, oh, it's a supplement. It's natural. The more, the better. It's safe. That is simply not true. So checking with the pharmacist uh, when you're in the pharmacy and you want to get a supplement, having the conversation, have them check to see if there's any drug interactions 
um, with the current medications um, that you take um, to see if there's any drug interactions. Also, look at how the bottle says you need to take it. One thing I see quite often is folks will take a multivitamin and then they want to take vitamin C, vitamin D, um, it'd be a complex vitamin on top of the multivitamin. They probably don't need all those additional supplements in addition to the multivitamin. Something else is you have to be cautious with a lot of these supplements. So just because a supplement is sold at the uh, nutrition store like a GNC does not make it a quality product. So there is something called USP. USP stamp of approval on supplements. That's one thing I look for to say, okay, it's gone through some testing before it's come to the shelf. But I would say the number one um, advice I would give folks is, or actually to your point, is don't assume it's safe just because it's natural. And to talk with the pharmacist, have them do a drug interaction check with all of your current medications and that supplement. Even with the supplements that are sold um, on TV, such as um, the GOLO, the Relief Factor, I've run into that lately. So I'll drill down, I'll look at the ingredients that are in those supplements and see if it interacts with medications. And a lot of times blood pressure medications, heart medications, Medications like Warfarin or Coumadin will a lot of times have drug interactions with many of these natural supplements. Great advice. I appreciate that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Dr. Mandy has been advising us on our Diabetes Mystery Podcast set for September. We're going to talk all about glucagon. But first, let's hear one of the songs that Tony Braxton co-wrote for her second album entitled Secrets courtesy of Sony Music. Here is How Can an Angel Break My Heart, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. podcast our uh, podcast coming up in September our cast has been rehearsing rehearsing and I've been rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and uh, it's coming all together it's based on a true story this year which I I hope you enjoy and Dr. Mandy you've been helping us with this show and getting some of the medical information correct and one of the big things we're talking about on the show is glucagon and I found out uh, by sampling a few of our listeners that most people don't even know what that is 
So what is glucagon, and why would anyone with diabetes want to take it? Sure, that's a great question. And I have to say, everybody, the mystery podcast is going to be amazing, so you have to listen in for it. Um, Glucagon, so it's a hormone that's actually produced within the pancreas, and the whole goal of it is it actually helps control the blood sugar to keep it in a healthy place. Particularly, it's actually glucagon's release um, when a person is fasting and also to raise very low glucose levels. And so, um, yeah, so it's made by the body, but a lot of times if a person has a really low blood sugar um, and they will actually need an injection um, or actually it could be administered nasally of glucagon. Is that for someone with type 1 or type 2? So it actually could be type 1 or type 2. Um, it's we primarily see it when folks uh, use or it, see it prescribed when a person is also on insulin. So frequently when a person is on mealtime and uh, background or long-acting insulin or just when they're on long-acting insulin, because it's when that person is, if the person's at risk of having a very low blood sugar, like less than 54 or when they have a low blood sugar, they can't um, orally take in any carbohydrates or sugar, or they're unconscious, they're going to need glucagon. And is it something that you administer uh, with a needle? Because I'm sure that's a turnoff for a lot of people. Are there other alternatives to taking glucagon besides injecting? Yes, actually there are, which is really exciting. Um, in 2019, a nasal formulation, it's kind of like a nasal spray, was developed. Um, and then also a simpler formulation of the injectable also came out um, in 2019. So the old school of way of having to mix it up, which when you're in a situation like that, this person's you know, having a low blood sugar, you're scared to death, trying to remember how to mix glucagon can be a nightmare. And so now we have these newer ways of administering glucagon. And does it expire or is it something like you have to keep in a certain temperature? Is it something I could just put in my bag, in my knapsack when I'm traveling? Like, you know, I assume it's a prescription, right? So do I do I go to my doctor? Can you just walk me through that? Let's just pretend like I'm going to Peru. Okay, sure. So before you go to Peru, you would get a prescription from your healthcare professional who prescribes your insulin. That could be an endocrinologist. It could be a primary care doctor. The uh, the good thing about the glucagon is it can be stored at room temperature. What that means is you would definitely want to pack it on your carry-on um, bag onto the plane. You would not want to put it into your checked luggage because it gets really hot down there below the, um, at the bottom of the plane. The shelf life is kind of nice. It's anywhere from about 18 months to two years, so a year and a half to two years, which isn't all that long because it's expensive when you get it, but it does have a pretty good shelf life, on average of about two years. And um, so definitely one thing that's important I would like to tell folks is 
if you're getting a prescription for insulin and you know that you have a tendency towards low blood sugar or you're going to be on insulin meal time and long acting insulin go ahead and ask for a prescription and um, for glucagon when you're getting that prescription and then go ahead and get a refill as it's getting closer to the expiration date so um, about three months out go ahead and make sure you get a refill on your glucagon okay and i just want to ask this since you mentioned insulin is it is it the same thing as insulin because I'm sure some people are wondering because you mentioned that. So are they the, do they do the same thing? I mean, is glucagon insulin and insulin glucagon? No, they're different. They are both made in the pancreas. But glucagon, what it does is it causes the liver to release glucose is what it's going to do versus um, the insulin is going to help the cells use up the glucose. So they're different. They're not one in the same. Okay, and our final question before we wrap up, you've been, I'm, you're, well, I threw you all these questions last night because I was just spiraling in my head about the 11th anniversary, as Patricia, I know, uh, gentle knows too well. But let's talk about expired medications and what do I do with them if I need one because this is something that comes up in our mystery podcast this year. Uh, can you give, I mean, when we're talking about, expired medications and maybe you're traveling, is there a way to get them or are there any basic guidelines around not just life-saving medications like insulin, but just in general with other medications? What's what's the protocol for that? And is there a way to work with my pharmacist around uh, a loophole if it's a weekend or super late at night or, you know, something like that? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, In recent years, some laws have changed to really allow pharmacists to dispense um, emergency amounts of medications. We see that in natural disasters, but we're seeing that more and more. So kind of as background, oftentimes doctor's offices or primary care practices, even endocrinologists, will they prefer for the pharmacy to reach out to them when a person needs a refill. So I encourage folks, go ahead, first of all, make sure you have a pharmacist that you have a relationship and that you trust. Call them if you realize, oh my gosh, I've got this expired medication, Call them. Let them know that you need the medication, that you're out of it, um, and that you need um, a prescription ASAP. Or if you're traveling, because a lot of times they can transfer prescriptions. Um, And so contact them first. If they're not able to get in touch um, with the doctor's office, what I would encourage folks to do, and this is a little bit odd, but push comes to shove and you have to do it, go ahead and if you call a pharmacy, they're not able to get a response. Have You go ahead and call your provider's office and even if it's in the evening or on the weekends, talk to the person that's on call. Let them know your situation. Let them know you need your medication. Um, and I'll tell you, pharmacists um, really are good about um, really helping folks to make sure they have their medication. If you don't have a pharmacist that's willing to help you, it may be time to get a new pharmacist. I love that. I want to I want to just talk about that one more second because it's our 11th year, and you know we have been encouraging people uh, to be advocates for their health, and I think this is so important that 
what you just said. If if people aren't working with you, because we like to say everyone's a diva, everyone has an entourage, if you don't like the entourage, then you should find someone else. It's not your problem. It's that person's problem, right? And and just reiterate that one more time, because I think it's such an important message for our listeners to know that we are advocating for them to advocate on their own behalf when it comes to health, uh, their diabetes health. We want them to live well. Absolutely. And I can just close with a um, personal story. I realized last week I got back from a trip and I had ordered a refill on my um, asthma inhaler that I need on a daily basis. And so I was looking around and I was like, but I ordered a refill. What happened here? So I have to use the mail order pharmacy um, for this particular medication. So I call the mail order pharmacy and they work on getting me emergency supply and I had to get off the phone. So I um, called the next day and they said, well, we're, we're going to rush your inhalers to you. I said, but I'm going to be out of medicine for two days. What am I supposed to do? And so they told me, they said, well, um, call your local pharmacy and then have them call us and we will give them, we'll transfer the prescription. So this is like Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. I happen to use an independent pharmacy, so it's locally owned. And I called the pharmacist and I'm like, this is a strange request, but I need you to call my insurance company to get a prescription transferred so I can have my asthma medication. And so he was so kind, called my insurance company, called me back and said, I've got your medication and actually we're gonna deliver it for you. So that's a great example of a pharmacist going, I felt like above and beyond for me to make sure that I had the medication that I needed. Not only that, it's a great example of pharmacists being people too. So I appreciate you sharing that because I think people would think you would have it all tightly under control. And it's nice to know that you're human like the rest of us. So thank you, Dr. Mandy Reese, for joining us tonight, being part of our 11th anniversary podcast, and again, for helping us with the mystery podcast. I just can't tell you how grateful we are to have you on the show and have you as someone we could turn to as part of our entourage. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I thoroughly enjoy it. All right. Well, straight ahead, we're talking about the godfather of house music, musician, DJ, remixer, producer, Frankie Knuckles, his musical legacy, and his battle with diabetes. But first, I can't believe we have this. It rarely happens, everybody. We have Tony Braxton. She has a song called I Don't Want to Know. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't want to. I'm too excited. I don't want to, and it was remixed by Frankie Knuckles. So if you don't know who Frankie Knuckles are, let's enjoy his remix, and then we'll be on the other side of this where we talk about Frankie Knuckles' musical legacy as well as his battle with diabetes.
Welcome back to Irish Late Night. And for those Tony Braxton purists out there, I have to tell you, I like a sad song too, but I wanted to go with the remixes tonight. I just personally prefer her with a remix. It gets a little bit drippy to me after a while. That's just my personal take on it. All right, we're welcome. we're going to talk about uh, a great mixture of music and diabetes empowerment right now. Dating back to the mid-2000s, DJ, record producer, and remixer Frankie Knuckles developed type 2 diabetes. Uh, after that, about 10 years after his diagnosis, he was um, had a foot injury related to snowboarding, and he had his foot uh, amputated before his death in 2014 at the age of 59. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, about the complication of diabetes called amputation, and find out a little bit more about his music. He's best known for developing and popularizing house music in Chicago during the 1980s, and joining me to talk about Frankie Knuckles is the New York-born, raised singer who worked with many great artists of our time, including Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson, and Frankie Knuckles, uh, Keith Anthony Fluitt. Welcome, Keith. Hey, how's everyone doing? Can you hear and me? also joining us is our diabetes care and education specialist, registered nurse, the very lovely Patricia Addie Gentle. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Max. Hi, Frank. I mean, excuse me, Keith. Hi, how Keith. are you? All right. I am right, well. So I know you have worked. You worked a little bit with Frankie, but let's just give people some background. First of all, he was born in the Bronx, but he made his name for himself in Chicago by putting together mega mixes of old disco hits with new drum machine percussion for large clubs like Warehouse. After 15 years of spinning vinyl, he began to record and do his own music, releasing the songs on Tracks Records. He worked uh, for a while with um, Larry Levon, who was a really big DJ as well. And I know for a fact that you worked with Frankie Knuckles when uh, you were in the studio working with Nicky Richards. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, that was really, <clears throat> excuse me, that was really a, a nice treat for me and everyone involved. It was uh, Frankie Knuckles, he was uh, recording his uh, a full project, and Nicky Richards was one of the featured singers on the uh, CD. And myself, Nicky, Audrey Wheeler, Karen Bernard, a bunch of the New York session singers were involved in singing background, and uh, Danny Madden was in charge of putting it all together, uh, uh, coordinating the vocals and arrange, arrangements, as well as uh, later on, after the release of the uh, CD, we did one show with Frankie uh, at, uh, I can't remember the name of the club, I know it's closed now, but it was in downtown Manhattan, around 14th Street, um, and he debuted one of the singles, as, as well as spend uh he spun that night as well, but uh, it was re- it was really nice. He was a sweetheart of a guy. I had worked with him prior to that on an alternate hey tune, uh, along with Danny Madden as well. So um, I didn't really I, I knew him uh, just in, in in a work relationship, but you know he was just a very sweetheart of a guy, very approachable, very approachable, very nice, very low key, you know. Um, so I I, I enjoyed you know, my time. You do a lot of session work, um, I've known throughout the years, but can you put some perspective of working on a Frankie Knuckles project for people who might not be aware of him? Because it, he he was very successful. I mean, he remixed major, major songs for, like we just said, Tony Braxton. He actually won the first Grammy for a remixer 
on Unbreak My Heart. We didn't play that cut earlier. Uh, we played this one instead. But he, he I just talk about how he stacked up in the industry as a session singer. Like, it, was that a job you wanted? And, and just give us a little bit more background insider. Well, I know for me, I, I uh, first came in contact with all of Frankie Knuckles. They all came out of... Um, uh, 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 oh, wow. They all came out of this house. Uh, Frankie Knuckles, David David Morales, and Tony Moran all uh, came out of Strictly Rhythm, I believe. Uh, at the time, it was I believe it was Strictly Rhythm at the time. It probably was called something else prior to Strictly Rhythm. But they all were under one umbrella at the time, and they all DJed and, and played together. And I know David Morales and Frankie uh, Knuckles became very close friends, and along with Tony Moran. Uh, so that's where I first came became familiar with all of them. And I know since then they've all gone and parlayed, have had major careers in uh, the remix world and, and, um, and things like that. Uh, I know, uh, like you said, to, uh, Frankie, uh, got a, a Grammy as well as uh, David Morales won a Grammy, and I believe Tony Moran um, was nominated for a Grammy uh, for for their remixes. Um, but for Tony's for uh, Frankie's project, that was his own original project with all original music um, that uh, was being featured that he was very very excited about um, because I believe this was his first. I know he had done projects in the past, but I think this particular project was his first full, full-on, uh, I think it was about 11 or 12 cuts on the CD with just him featuring his music that he co-wrote, arranged, produced, and, you know, uh, executive producer and everything. So he was really excited about launching that and um, and, and seeing, you know, taking it to the next level, taking his career to the next level. I love it. All right. Thank you for that. And Patricia, you know, there's something sadly ironic about a man who made his name and his money making music to make people dance who suffered a foot amputation. So let's unpack some of his diabetes health interest in, uh, history for our listeners to understand some of the common but completely misunderstood facts about diabetes health-related complications such as amputation. Let's just begin by talking about what's like, what do you think is the biggest misconception about amputation related to diabetes? Um, unfortunately, there are so many people who have, well, first of all, amputations of the lower extremity is usually what we see. And most times, if it's a foot, uh, it's preceded by a foot ulcer or some type of an infection of that extremity. And it's so unfortunate that there are so many who feel that they just are not able to um, live without that, that extremity. And so, so often we will see people who will allow that amputation, excuse me, allow that infection to spread or to hang on to the foot, the leg, or whatever uh, for a longer amount of time than they should, which leads to other health complications. And so that that's the misfortunate part, that I feel uh, so many people could live a healthier, 
higher quality of life if they get treatment in time. All right, and so I was reading on the web a personal account of this from Frankie Knuckles about what happened. So he said almost 10 years before his death, he broke his foot snowboarding, like I said earlier, but he didn't sit still and allow it to mend properly. He admitted that he returned to the road, which uh, Keith works in music. Those are long hours, late hours, irregular schedule. And he continued to uh, travel during the health process. His foot didn't heal properly, which gave him great difficulty. And that is, uh, he developed a disease in his foot that was related to the bone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, what I have read is that Frankie Knuckles did develop osteomyelitis, and that is an infection of the bone. Um, usually the infection is, um, you know, th- there's a redness or fever in that area, weakness. There, uh, you, You'll see red streaks probably up the leg or um, especially on the foot or the area that's affected. And so it's usually caused by a bacterial infection. So I would think that perhaps with the complication of having diabetes along with osteomyelitis, that that even uh, made his condition a more complex, more complicated kind of scenario. Osteomyelitis often accompanies diabetes, but there are people who develop the infection of the bone and they don't have diabetes. But when the two are existing together, that's even um, harder to heal or harder to treat. So, uh, and I'm sure the the blood sugar is fluctuating and a lack of healing and slow healing complicated that. And, Keith, um, share your own perspective on this because you have a few things in common with Frankie's story, if you don't mind. Well, one is um, I'm a type 2 diabetic, and I was uh, diagnosed when I was 40. And um, I didn't start taking it seriously until about hmm, almost close to 10 years, I would say, I started uh, the first five years, five or six years, I, I didn't really change anything in my eating habit or exercising or any of that. And I would say somewhere within the sixth, seventh year, I started to take it seriously. Nothing happened um, for, for that to happen. I just started to realize, you know, the seriousness of the disease of, of diabetes and started to exercise and started to watch what I was eating and reading labels and things like that. And um, I was doing really, really good. And just uh, uh, w- within that, uh, I started, I had a, and um, cutting my toenails one, one day, I uh, cut a piece of my skin that never healed properly. Excuse me. And from that, I had to get, uh, there was a little infection. You know, the doctors kept tending to it, kept, you know, putting different things on it to help it heal and bandaging, bandage, bandage, oh, I can't even speak today, uh, wrapped it up, and uh, but it never healed properly. And then there was a slight infection on the tip of the bone uh, on my big toe. There was just a, a very slight infection, so they watched that, 
and um, and then it became apparent that either I can take antibiotics through the you know uh, uh, through the veins and hope hope to flesh it out, or they could just have a procedure done and take the tip of the bone from my toe. So I decided that instead of to instead of doing the um, the fluids, I decided just to go ahead on and take the tip of the bone of the toe. So they took uh, just I'm just missing my toenail basically of my big foot um, of my big toe. Um, uh, so I don't need assistance with walking or anything as far as a cane or anything like that. But um, and it's that was three years ago, so it's healed and looks great. Um, I'm still going to the doctors, letting them check on it, and they have nothing but good things to say about it. You know, uh, the doctor that performed the procedure did a great job, and um, hopefully I don't have to revisit that part of diabetes anymore, God willing. Yeah, we hope so, too. I mean, Keith is telling a story that's fairly common, Patricia, when you look at the statistics of people who have dealt with some kind of lower limb amputation. And I think one of the misconceptions is just that people think your foot or your leg just falls off. They don't realize that there's kind of a process involved here, like Keith was just explaining, where there's a little time and there's some kind of um, moment where you interact with your doctor before, you know, it actually happens. So talk a little bit about uh, just the process a little bit more because I think, again, people think it's just something that happens suddenly, and it really isn't. It's like the idea that people do have to take proper foot care and make some time when they're showering or bathing to make sure that they're checking their feet daily. Most definitely, and foot care cannot be overemphasized when a person have, has a diagnosis of diabetes, and that is something that we talk about over and over and over and over emphasize um, that foot care should not be neglected. A person with diabetes should do a self-inspection of the feet on a daily basis. Uh, And even more often if there's reason to, let's say that they have um, worn a shoe and it's a, a brand new shoe and perhaps they wore it all day and couldn't change or whatever and they felt just a little uh, tightness or pressure in a certain area, then you should inspect the foot. Look for redness. Look for open uh, abrasions. Look for corns and calluses that were no not there previously. Those are the kind of things that you look for to inspect the feet daily. Then podiatry care cannot be neglected. And I heard Keith talk about um, he was clipping his toenail, and that's how it started. And so often we do hear about um, someone who has clipped a toenail too closely, and it leads to amputation. So podiatry care is essential, and we encourage our, our patients to see a podiatrist at least every three months for toenail clippings. Um, if you're doing the, the clipping yourself, you have to be very, very careful, and it's not recommended that you do it yourself. Uh, have your physician to do that. But, yes, it starts with an ulcer usually or some type of a sore, and it may go for, I've seen people have uh, open area on the foot that's treated for over a year, 
and sometimes it just never heals or it progresses to a point where there is osteomyelitis or infection in the bone and end up with an amputation that way. So foot care cannot be emphasized. I want to talk about what happens if you don't amputate. So let's start with Keith. Did your doc, when when you heard this protocol, Keith, did they did you have any hesitation? Did you voice concern about should I or shouldn't I, or how was that uh, discussed? Well, like I said before, they gave me an option. They said that they could they would um, give me some type of antibiotics, you know, uh, through my veins to hopefully cleanse the wound and heal it from the inside out. And if that didn't work, then they would have to do the amputation of the the tip of the toe. Um, Or they could just go right on ahead and do the tip and and amputate the tip of the toe without doing the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the fluids, you know, through the veins. Excuse me. I decided to, um, just go ahead and amputate the toe, the tip of the toe, um, because I just felt, I just felt that uh, let's just do that instead of doing the. Who knows? I mean, you you could always play the if a shoulda woulda coulda game, you know. But um, if I did the uh, inter um, the fluids through the veins and it didn't work, they would have to amputate anyway. So. Not to say that I was just going for the amputation just to get it done, but it was sort of kind of that way. I was just wanted to know that the infection was would be gone, and you know that bone would be gone that was infected, and any and they looked at my toe to see if any of the other the connecting bones were were affected, and they weren't. Thank God. So you know everything has been good so far. So that that was my it was my decision. They gave me the choice. Uh, they gave me uh, the decision to make make it on my own, um, and that's what I decided to do because I thought that was best for me, you know. And, and Patricia, close to uh, 140,000 diabetes-related amputations occur every year occur every year in the U.S., and the structural inequality leads to black people being four times more likely to get experience an amputation over their Caucasian counterparts uh, reports Lancet. I'm just curious though, like I know there are a lot of people out there who don't want the amputation who, you know, they say, I don't want to lose my leg. So is there, is that, a, is that an option or what is the repercussions of choosing not to go to the doc, doctor, not to have it treated or going and hearing the news and not wanting to take any action? Well, I, I must say that treatment is necessary. And whether that treatment is amputation or antibiotics or uh, dressing changes or whatever, the treatment is necessary. Um, If the treatment does not work, if the infection is spreading, um, if there's any reason that you're not healing, then amputation is definitely necessary. And it's necessary because the depth of the tissue occurs. You'll have uh, infection in the tissue. It's not healing. That infection spreads. Uh, It causes death of the tissue. And when there's death of the tissue, we call that condition gangrene. 
So when there is gangrene, you are not going to regenerate. That tissue will, will not get any better. And so the best thing to do is to amputate uh, before it spreads throughout the system. A prime example, um, if you want to uh, look into the life of Bob Marley, um, that's exactly what happened to him. He had a gangrene of the foot and decided that he would not have an amputation. And so it can lead to death once infection gets um, into the bloodstream. I love how you pulled out that reference. Brilliant. <laughs> You're brilliant. <laughs> All right, before we let you go, Keith, it's our 11th anniversary, so we have a pop quiz, one question for you. Uh, which of the following are factors for diabetic foot ulcers? Is it A, neuropathy, B, foot deformity, C, peripheral vascular disease, D, prior foot ulcer, or E, all of the above. Which of the following is our factors for diabetic foot ulcers? Answer? I want to say... Ooh la la. Uh, I want to say A, or A and, and B, neuropathy and uh, ulcer. I want to say those. Is that two. your final? Is that your final answer? Uh yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. geez. It, it was all of the above. Why is it all of the above? Why are the factors for diabetic foot ulcers, including neuropathy, foot deformity, peripheral vascular disease, prior foot ulcers? Uh, Patricia, why why is that? Well, all of those do complicate. Um, the circulation. So if there is, a, uh, I can't remember the order you said, but even with the, the foot deformity, then it will cause the, the person to stand differently, that the pressure points change. And so if you're standing and causing pressure in a certain area on a bony structure, then that leads to ulceration. Uh, the peripheral neuropathy, definitely, because there's a, a less sensation. You're not feeling. Um, that's one of the main reasons we talk about inspecting the feet as well, because sometimes a person with diabetes who has neuropathy may step on a nail or may have a little tack or something in the shoe that they didn't feel. So that's one of the main reasons you want to inspect and look. Once you pull your shoe off, is there anything that has caused an abrasion, abrasion to the foot? So, yes, neuropathy, uh, less sensation, the deformity, the circulatory risk, and the foot ulceration, all of the above, will, cause, um, will be causes that will lead to the risk for amputation. Great advice. All right. Well, thank you, Keith and Patricia, for helping us talk about the legacy and life of Frankie Knuckles. Coming up, our next guest faces several roadblocks in her journey for optimum health in the form of her family uh, and her doctor's lack of knowledge and understanding for what she's going through, including some of the major injustices she's found with major food manufacturers. But first, we're going to hear Unbreak My Heart, courtesy of Tony Music. Here's our diva inspiration, Tony Braxton. Don't leave me in the past. Don't leave me under the moon. Come back and bring my 
Dr. Diabetes Late Night and Diabetics 11th Annual Podcast. We're so excited to have you. Our 11th year annual podcast. What, what do I want to say? Our 11th, and our 11th year anniversary podcast. Wow. What, what am I going to do at 12 if I keep making these mistakes? You know, if you love a reality show, you love it for all the drama, including the family, uh, the Braxton family values starring the Braxton sisters, Tony, Tracy, Tawanda, Trina, and Tamar, plus their mother, Evelyn, who are known for their crazy family dynamics. But what is actually happening to you in real life? I don't know if you'd like that crazy idea or your family's crazy ideas about sabotaging your ability to stay healthy. Joining me to talk about her own personal struggle and triumph is our next guest. Please welcome Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Are you there? Hello? Are you there? Hello. Oh, great. Hello. There you are. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Can nice you hear to me? be here. Yes. So you and I have had several conversations prior to the podcast, and I just want to jump in by telling us a little bit about your family history, where you grew up, how many siblings you have, how big an extended family you have, and if they have any relation to diabetes. So I did grow up in Florida, and on my father's side, there is quite a bit of diabetes. So I was surprised when my turn came. I was told I was di- I, w- I was told that I was pre-diabetic, not knowing what it meant for the next few years. I I didn't know what pre meant because I never heard that term being used in my family. They were diabetic. So I have uh, three siblings, and three out of four of us seem to be what pre-diabetic or diabetic. So yeah, that's a relatively that's, uh, new term. So what what was going through your mind when you got that term from when you heard that term from I assume your general practitioner? I had no clue what they meant. I thought they don't know what they're talking about. I've never heard of it, so I forgot about it. <laughs> and how did you feel your um, your older relatives dealt with their diabetes? Were they managing it well? Were they compliant? Did they adhere to their medications or make lifestyle changes, or did they just accept it and let uh, faith take over? I saw the needle. I saw my dad helping give his grandfather the needle, his grandmother the needle, and then his cousin, his first cousin, the needle. So that's how they dealt with it. But I saw blindness, I saw heart attack, I saw the, the, what do you call it, removal of the limb. And I remember my grandmother in the 70s saying, I can't eat too many grapes, it makes my sugar go up. So those are my memories. Yeah, my grandmother on my mother's side had diabetes too. I remember the needles and I don't remember much more than that, but I always... So, like, you know, looking back, I wish I had no someone had educated me more about it than just showing me the needle. Now, some of this, though, as you and I were talking in um, leading up to this podcast, has a little bit to do about how you were raised because you were kind of a skinny kid, and because you were a skinny a kid who grew into a skinny adult, not everyone was really uh, supporting that. In fact, a lot of people were kind of stressing you out just around your shape and size. Can you talk a little bit to that? Yes, 
apparently I had body dysmorphia where I thought, I'm too skinny. I've got to gain weight. So I tried to eat more bad food. That's what they told me. You can eat all the ice cream you want. You can eat all the pasta you want. And I tried to gain weight, but it didn't work. And and yet it even had a more adverse effect on you because it affected your teeth. So talk a little bit about that as well. Yes. Apparently the mouth uh, suffered. I had cavities. And the the upper digestive, my digestive system was starting to fail. I had indigestion. I I use Rolaids and Tums every day, and now I know you're never supposed to eat Rolaids Tums every day. So I damage my body. It, it, I think it's the same as if somebody is a, um, what do you call it, where they're always trying to lose weight, anorexic. Well, they're trying, so, yeah, they're trying to... Restrict their calories, yeah. They're vomiting, bulimia. They're vomiting so much. They're they're damaging their mouth, their teeth, and their their colon must be messed up also. So. And you went to the dentist and you went in for a treatment, but something bad happened as a result of that trip to the dentist. Yes, I had many trips to the dentist. I was still thin. <laughs> But I had cavities, and the cavities lead to root canals. And I learned with root canal, a lot of bad things can happen. So there was cotton left in my root canals. I was supposed to go back, be sent back to the endodontist, they call that doctor. And I was never sent back. So about five years later, I started to feel sick, didn't know what it was. Maybe another five years, I realized there was cotton in my mouth still in those teeth. So, and the and third tooth had, it was difficult. What did that happen to your house? Oh, I was sick. Oh, I was, I didn't know what was wrong. I thought, am I dying? Uh, so apparently, whatever it was in my mouth, the bacteria maybe, I still don't know what was in there. Um, what it, it travels, it moves, it's in your whole body. Your head is connected to the rest of your body. I lost my my uterus from it. My fibroids were out of control because I always control my fibroid by um, getting something at the health food store for your uterus or just eating a better diet seemed to help them a lot. But once that bacteria or whatever it was was throughout my body, it was out of control. I I lost my uterus at the age of 53. And I love my uterus. I've never had a problem with my, my uterus. So... I know. I mean, this is interesting because when you and I spoke, you know, it seems like a lot of things you were you were forced that were forced upon you were because, in many ways, you weren't getting any information prior, not from your family members, not from your doctors. So, in regards to talking about your uterus, you mentioned something about how your family never really, your mother never really talked to you about your body or a woman's body or how it matures. Can you, you know, I think listeners, I know a lot of listeners share these, this, this story, and I think, you know, we're always urging people that they're not alone. So if you don't mind just kind of explaining more about that, your own journal, journey to becoming an advocate for your health and where it started from this place of really lack of information. 
All right. So I had plenty of women in my family, grandmothers, aunts, my mom, two sisters, and my dad was the health teacher for our school system. <laughs> so, of course, he's a man, and we're talking the, what, 60s, 70s. He's not going to talk about my period. Um, and my GYN, they never discussed my uterus, my uter- my health of my uterus. Uh, Dr. Oz <laughs> talked about the uterus on the Oprah show, but um, you know we learn the best way we know how. And what did what did you take away from that show? I mean, what was like the aha moment? Did any of that? Did anything you heard on Oprah really kind of like click in your brain and suddenly start to think like, okay, I've got, I'm I'm going to take this path. Well, I don't even recall what that topic for the uterus that day was, but I just felt so free and so excited to see a uterus on TV. It was large. It was ex- it was extra life size, and I just felt like finally we don't have to keep it a secret that we have a uterus. <laughs> so no, I, I, yeah, I mean. I, 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 it's just like these struggles are not unique, and people just seem not to feel like, as you heard me talking to the pharmacist earlier, we're not, a lot of people don't feel like they're getting the information they need ahead of a health crisis or situation. So that's why I'm asking you to go into a little bit more depth. And specifically, I want to talk about white sugar, because you remember like in the 70s hearing that white sugar was bad, but at the time, because of how you grew up and who you were around, that just seemed like so out of out of a different planet. I'm, I'm wondering, like, talk a little bit about that and how you began to change your health habits or your attitude around what foods and what foods to eat and what foods not to eat. Okay, so in college, a young lady told me, that white sugar was bad, and I thought, she must be a hippie. I'm not doing that. Drugs and love and sex, I'm not doing that. I had white sugar for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I made sure I had a five-pound bag of Dixie Crystal brand sugar for myself. So, <laughs> so since then, I've changed my mind a lot. She was right. What led you to change it, like, and and how, and tell us how you have changed it, like, update us today with what, how you, what do you, what do you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner today? So today for breakfast, I eat what I would eat for lunch, which could be vegetables, all vegetables, or it could be vegetables and meat, and I don't add a lot of chemicals. I don't add a lot of sauces that have chemicals. I make my own sauce. I make my my dressing for my salad with simple whole food items. Uh, I just stay as chemical free as I can. Is that hard? I mean, when you're going, when you're out shopping at grocery stores in South Florida and everything, and do you find that easy? Was that ever an issue for you, or is that something that's pretty easily resolved when you made that decision to choose to go that way? Well, what I did, I've learned, Max, that it can be extremely difficult to find food, what I call real food. Um, but I find it. I make, I just do it <laughs> because when I eat better, I feel better. 
not only do I not have diabetes, but I don't have uh, arthritis anymore. I don't fall down on the floor anymore. I don't have terrible headaches anymore. So I don't have, I guess, arthritis is what I was getting. So I just like feeling better. <laughs> and how so does your family react to you eating broccoli in the morning? Well, broccoli has a strong odor. <laughs> So a lot of people are not happy, but some people are. They smell my food, and they say it smells so good. So it depends on who you ask. And, I mean, in general, how do they react to some of your your habits today versus maybe how you were eating prior? Well, uh, I might have one large plate with, uh, like I said, vegetables, or a big salad, and another big plate that's got a whole fish with a head and tail attached, and it's not fried. It's maybe steamed or, I don't know, broiled or something, or baked. So they're they're quiet. (laughs) They don't say a word until I mess up. If I'm eating a pack of potato chips or something, that's when someone will say, you're eating that? (laughs) So they're not with me. Thanksgiving dinner, if there's going to be a lettuce, tomato type salad, I bring it and, you know, I eat it. They are not interested. So, you know, I just learned not to force people, not to nag people. Let them do what they can handle. No, I love it. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more to Sonia and bring in our own Patricia Addy Gentle to unpack some of these terms like prediabetes and get some information on it first. But first, let's talk about more about Tony Braxton and her family. Her sister Tracy Braxton told Essence Magazine that her sisters were the first to confront her about her weight. She admits that when she was less than, that she was less than pleased about her intervention moment. What she said was, I really wanted to punch them in the face. But my, sis- my sisters were exactly right. They saw me gaining weight. I developed type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and I was in denial. Let's listen to there's, uh, lo- I love me some more, I love me some him, courtesy of Sunny Music. She said she makes she makes time now to make sure she is not giving so much that she forgets about herself 
and she has a new podcast entitled Under Construction to help others who might feel ashamed about it. Sonia, before we bring in um, Patricia to talk about the term prediabetes, I just want to um, ask you, like, this, this journey had to be very frustrating to get to the place you are today. I know a lot of people uh, out there listening have also been dealing with a lot of obstacles in their life, including family members who don't really support them with their health. So I'm just, what would you say to people out there who might feel like, you know, I just can't take the pressure and the teasing and the criticizing and everything else that their family unloads on them because they're they're trying to achieve optimum health? Oh, Max, you have to have a strong support system, and I do. I talk to anyone who will listen and share with me uh, education regarding health, uh, plant-based diets, so I have a lot of support, and that's what they need. They need to call me. <laughs> I'll talk to you all day about cleanses, uh, the supplements I've used in my life, and the fact that I'll be 64 next month and I don't take any medication. And I thought it was normal not to take medication, but my friends are saying, no, you're not even on high blood pressure medication. I go, no, uh, uh, that means something's wrong if my blood pressure is high and I need a medication. That means something is terribly wrong. So uh, my doctors don't say, oh, good for you. You're not taking anything. They don't seem to care. <laughs> so definitely have a strong uh, system around you, people who agree with you. No, I think that's great advice. All right, Patricia, welcome back to the show. Uh, Sonia was said right at the top about a diagnosis of prediabetes. What is that? Can you tell us a little bit about prediabetes and what it actually means? Well, Max, prediabetes is, uh, as you said, relatively new. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's been around now for at least seven or eight years, that term, but a lot of people still have not heard about prediabetes. And prediabetes uh, is actually a precursor to type 2 diabetes. It gives a person an opportunity to try and to change some things around before diabetes sets in. So when we're looking at numbers, we look at prediabetes as um, that fasting blood sugar of greater than 99 and a blood sugar of 126 or greater is what, where we cut off for diabetes. So between 100 and 125 is prediabetes. And also the A1C, we look at that at 6.4% uh, is, is, is prediabetes. So um, 6.3, 6.2, anywhere uh, 5.9 then you're good. But once you get to 6.5, we are at diabetes. And so it does give a person an opportunity to try and make some lifestyle changes. Um, Dr. Mandy was talking to us about um, how sometimes medications are just indicated. Sometimes the pancreas is no longer making enough insulin to um, sustain the person's blood sugar at, at normal levels. But if at all possible, uh, once prediabetes has been diagnosed, sometimes changes can be made that will buy time before diabetes comes. 
Uh, did you have any questions about that, Sonia? No, I don't. Thank you. So I, I wanted to. Um, she brought up a really another really great point, I think, around blood pressure and the fact that people take it for granted that after a certain age you just go on blood pressure medi- medication and so that's the end of that. We've talked about this point before, Patricia, and the general public's kind of uh, recklessness when it comes to blood pressure medication and just thinking that 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 it doesn't mean anything. And I think Sonia just said it so brilliantly. I'd love to hear what your perspective is on it, too. Well, my goal or what I teach patients, the goal should be to make sure that you fall within the ranges that are acceptable, um, meaning that your heart is not working, is not being overworked. And so when, when we measure blood pressure, we're looking at the resistance or the pressure that's exerted on the wall of our arteries. And so if that pressure is increased, if it's greater than what it should be, then it's causing our heart to overwork. And so if the number, we're looking at 130 for the top number, we're looking at 80 for that bottom number. If your numbers are greater, then medication may be indicated. But, of course, blood pressure is measured more than one time. So just a single reading of a high blood pressure does not necessarily mean that the person needs to start medication. But a primary care physician would be the one to decide whether or not it's time to treat it. But if those numbers are increased, most definitely manage to target because it um, helps to decrease the risk of stroke, heart disease, heart attacks, and a multitude of other conditions with the cardiovascular system. Great advice. And, Sonia, I want to come back to you because you and I spent a lot of time just talking about big food manufacturers and some of the, um, you know, obstacles that you feel that most of us are dealing with when we're trying to achieve good health. And like you said, maybe delay or prevent a a diabetes diagnosis. So, I know you've had a lot of frustration with Dunkin' Donuts being so prevalent in your community versus the Whole Foods or anything like that. So I want to give you a minute to just kind of sound off on some of the things that have been really bothering you about how the society is viewing how we should achieve health. All right. I like that people in general in our country seem to be more aware of uh, the importance of what we eat and how we eat it because I'm seeing more farmer's markets. I'm seeing more stores that have uh, produce. Uh, That's my favorite part of the store, the produce section. I'm there for a long time. And I'm learning more about sprouted foods, how much nutrition is in uh, something that's fermented or sprouted. Um, I've asked a few people in the produce department who were in charge of the department, what's the most nutritious food in the whole store? And they say sprouts. And I'll say, do you eat them? And they'll say, no, they don't eat them. So I like that I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people like me who use food as medicine. And I get my blood work done. I like to see the results. But I just like feeling better. And I talk about this subject a lot because 
I have become my own doctor, in a sense. I had to realize, what is pre, pre-diabetes? Oh, it means if I eat at restaurants and at people's houses in general, I'm going to be diabetic, not to discredit anyone. But um, I, like, I like knowledge, and I like listening to my body. I think that's so important. I mean, any comments from you, Patricia, on that? I mean, when you, who want a patient like Sonia? That's very important, and uh, I like to call it selective eating or mindful eating. And so we have to be very selective about the things that we do consume. And and she's right, eating at someone else's house or in certain restaurants and not being selective, uh, hopefully there are some things on the menu, some items that will be appropriate for you, but sometimes there's not. And so we have to be selective. We have to be mindful about uh, our consumption of food. And don't forget the beverages. True. Oh, that's so true. And, and before we wrap up, I have to tell you, Sonia, that I had broccoli in uh, for you today, <laughs> this morning for breakfast. <laughs> I woke up and said, Sonia, broccoli. I'm going to have broccoli, too. So I had my broccoli this morning for breakfast. It was delicious. I might do it again. <laughs> So thank you for that inspiration. All right. Well, I want to thank all my guests tonight, Dr. Mandy Reese, Keith Anthony Fluid, Sonia Hongins, uh, Patricia Eddie Gentle. Patricia, thank you for being a part of the podcast for these eleven years. I can't imagine doing it without you. It means so much to me that we get to work together. And I want to tell all you listeners again, thank you so much for being with us in this entire journey. It has just been incredible, and this is really a tribute to you that we keep putting out this podcast and you keep tuning in and making us so popular with these monthly podcasts. Please take a minute to visit our Facebook page or visit my Mr. Divabetic or the Divabetic YouTube channel and check us out on Instagram. Remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage, and we're so glad to be part of yours. Let's stay happy and healthy together. I thought this next song by Tony Braxton sets the mood for how we're all coming out of the pandemic. Sometimes you just have to let the stress roll off your back, or as she likes to say, let it flow. Have a good night. Monday morning, I'm gonna pack my fears away. Got no call to look back. I'm looking for me a better day. Did I think I love that is not enough? It's the only thing it brings you pain. Comes a time when we could all make a change Just let go Let it flow Let it flow Let it flow Everything's gonna work out right, you know 